I'm like a five. As you're doing that, <clears throat> I want to share a quick story. I was in a waiting room waiting to pick up my daughter a couple couple weeks ago, and I was thinking about this message. And there was a woman at the at the in the waiting room, and she had a, a book. I don't remember exactly the title, but it was something about understanding God's will or discerning God's will. And I thought, man, that's a question that people spend lots of time thinking about, isn't it? God's will. What is God's will in my life? How do I discern God's will? You know, there's books written, there's sermons and sermons and sermons all about God's will. But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about Micah 5, I said, you know, the question that's asked probably a lot less is not so much what is God's will, but how does God work? Because how God works is a different question. It's not something that you can do, right? Because if you say, what is God's will? That's where do I, where, what am I supposed to do? What, what, where can I go? Where, what can, decision can I make? But if we ask, where is God working? That's a different question altogether. And it's not an easy answer. It's a difficult question sometimes. I was reminded, uh, as I was thinking about this, I was reminding, reminded again of a, a story of Elizabeth Elliot. She shares. Uh, many of you know her husband died with five other, or he and four other missionaries down in uh, South Africa in 1956. And her second husband died in, of cancer. But she tells this. She's up in North Wales visiting a shepherd in the mountains. And she says this of the, of the shepherd. One by one he would grab the rams by their horns and fling them into a ta- tank of antiseptic. They would struggle to climb out, but the sheepdog would snarl in their faces to force them back in. Just as they were about to climb up the ramp, the shepherd would catch them by their horns with a wooden implement, spin them around, and force them under again, holding them completely under for a few seconds. The sheep didn't have a clue about what was happening. And then Elizabeth says this, I've had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting for the shepherd I trusted. And he didn't give me a hint of explanation. See, how does God move? It's not, a, it's not an easy question. You know, we, we, the often quoted verse, Romans 8.28, God works all things for those who love him, right? And we, we, we say that, but what does that really mean? How does that work itself out? And we come to, to Micah 5, and I think it's appropriate because Micah 5 is asks that same question, but it is a difficult chapter to understand. Um, and so it, to answer that question and to answer, to, to understand Micah 5, we need to, to pray. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for how you are at work around the world. Lord, I do pray for Marcy as she prepares to leave. I pray for the the language that she is struggling with, I pray that you would give her uh, understanding in that, that she would be able to go there in, the, in a small church of six people, that they would, as, it is, as a plant from a, of a church of 18, I pray that you would grow that. Lord, I do also pray for Rob Provost and his family as they go down to North Carolina for um, the Cary Church down there. I pray that you would help him help them him mobilize that church to be a missions minded mission sending church lord now we pray for this message lord you are at work all around us 
I pray that you would give us eyes to see. That you would give us um, hearts and, and minds that are able to comprehend your word and your leading in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, uh, just a part of review. Uh, as many of you know, the um, as we're, we're going through Micah every time I preach, which is about once every six months, it's the longest Micah message ever, I think, sermon series. Um, but the story of the Old Testament is the history of Israel, isn't it? And halfway through you get to before, you know, after Abraham and Moses and Noah and all all those patriarchs. We get to David in the middle, which is considered the, the pinnacle of, of the nation of Israel. Right? And then there's the, 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 the nation of Israel expands, and then under his son Solomon, they experience a t- sort of a, a calm and a rest. But it doesn't last long for uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who comes and, and makes a foolish decision. And Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom into two. And so you have the northern tribes of, of Israel and you have the southern two tribes of Judah. And after that split, there's just the steady, constant, slow decline of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And so as we come to Micah, Micah is, uh, is written by Micah, who is a, a prophet who had a long history of prophesying in the, in the southern tribe of Judah. And at this time, the northern tribes are no longer. For it's uh, Sennacherib, over the king of Assyria, who had, come, who had come and he had ransacked the northern tribes. And they do, the Assyria did such an effective job that what they would do is they would basically ban any customs or cultures that their, their, uh, the, the, the country that they were conquered had they would force intermarriage they would force them to forsake all of their customs and the northern kingdom was essentially never heard from ever again and so he comes down and so we we come to Micah 5 and here's what it says read with me if you have it. it says this now muster your troops O daughter of troops siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who, is too, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose origin from is of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads on our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be amongst 
among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a lion among the sheep of flock, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall no more, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. And I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. <clears throat> so verse 1 starts as a downer, doesn't it? It's, it starts out and it says, Summon your troops, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. <laughs> starts off in a desperate downer of a situation. As we were talking about before, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had, was, had conquered all of the northern tribes and had done so, so effectively that nor, nor, the northern tribes are no longer. But as he comes down, he demolishes all of Judah as well until he comes to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the only remnant, the only part of Judah that is left. And there's, they lay siege to it. And so Judah is the, the, long, the lone survivor. Jerusalem is the lone survivor. And I thought about this, about how hopeless the situation would be, of how God would work in a hopeless situation, just about being laid siege to. You know, we don't quite understand what that means. You know, I mean, when's the last time you, know, you worried about Elgin coming from the west and laying siege with their SUVs around the city of Rockford? It's just not something we think about. Um, but, you know, I don't know how many of you are keeping in touch with the conflict in Syria. Uh, I came across this a couple weeks ago. Uh, there was a person who was in Old Homs in Syria, a CNN correspondent. And if, if some of you know, in 2011, the rebels, the Islamic rebels, came and they captured the city of Homs. And then the 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 government came and they tried to push out the rebels. And so what they did is they came and they shelled the city and they surrounded the, the city for over uh, two years. And there was less than 30 survivors of civilians. You know, there, there was in, the, in the city there were a number of, obviously, the rebels. But the, the CNN correspondent interviewed one of the survivors. Her name was Zainat Akras, I think. Um, she says this, Zanat is one of fewer than 30 civilians known to have lived through the entire siege of Homs. More than two years of constant shelling, sniper fire, and starvation. I'm only, I am 49 years old, and I weigh only 34 kilos, about 75 pounds. Zanat told the correspondent when she met her at a damaged church in the old Homs. The shelling was terrible. It was going on almost all the time. I got wounded on my arm and on my shoulder once. Zanat survived the siege with her brother, Amon. They remained in a little apartment, hoping it wouldn't be flattened by artillery shell. 
or that Islamist rebels wouldn't kill the two Christians, as Christians are often perceived to be the opposition to support the regime of the president. Iman and Zanat devoted all their energy to staying alive. Iman ventured out into the dangerous streets almost every day, looking for material to burn in a little stove they have in their apartment. Zinat and Amman soon found their supplies running out as the siege raged on. In the beginning, we had canned some canned foods and quickly ran out, Amman said. Then the rebels came and raided our apartment. They took a lot of the dry foods we had left, like flour, bulgur, and rice. They came more than 30 times and broke in and held guns in our face. It is an awful feeling to be sleeping at night and then to wake up with a gun to your head. I don't know. Some of you guys might have bad days. doesn't touch this. <clears throat> when the last of the food was gone, Amman was forced to go out and search the grass and leaves to eat. He found the leaves that saved their lives in a tree in a, in a graveyard of all places. Her, the brother and sister say it was also their faith that helped them through the two years of confinement, violence, and hunger. They are both devout Orthodox Christians. Some of the nights were just plain sad, Amman said. But in the end, they made it through more than 70 days of siege of old Hans. And so, maybe that puts in a little perspective of the, of the siege. But the, uh, 2 Kings gives us also a, a better illustration of the siege. 2 Kings 18, you turn there to 2 Kings 18, it talks about the siege of Jerusalem. Second Kings 18, verse 17, it says, The king of Assyria sent the Tartan and Rabsaris and the Rabshakeh with the great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And then we go to verse 26. It says this, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Reb Shaka, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand that. Do not speak to us in a language of Judah, written in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the ram Shaka said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? It gives you a little bit of the taste of what they're in for right now. They're under siege. There's no hope. And it is in that situation that we see that God works in desperate situations. God works in desperate situations and we see that in verse, going back to verse 1, it says this, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In part, that's, a, that's talking about Hezekiah being struck, being humiliated by the, the nation and the army of the Assyrians. But in verse 2, we see that God works in unlikely ways. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose origin from is from of old, from ancient days. Isn't it like God to use those unlikely situations, those small 
insignificant places, those small insignificant people to do great things. He's going to use the nation, the little city of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It talks about this ruler coming forth from of old. Now the, the, the uh, commentators say it could be two, one of two things, like one being from ancient of days, like for, foretold from long, long ago. Or it could be like, like the great time of Israel, like that great King David. This is going to be like the old school David. This is going to be like that retro guy that when Israel was at its peak. And it talks about this ruler. Look in verse 4. It says, here's what this ruler will be like. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He's not going to take this sitting down. He's going to rule. He's going to exert his authority. And he shall and he, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He won't use his own power or his own force like all the other kings who made so many poor decisions and were evil in the sight of the Lord. But he's going to use the strength of the Lord and ruin the majesty of the name of the God of the Lord his God. He will be great to the ends of the earth. He will be in control of everything. Nothing will go on without his approval. So the obvious question to these people was, is it going to be Hezekiah? Because Hezekiah was, though he was a was one of the kings of the lineage. He was a great king. But we, we know quickly that he is not that king because he did not come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So the question is, when? When will this great king, this great ruler come and help the nation of, of Jerusalem or the, the nation of, of Judah? And in verse 3, we get the answer. We see that God works in His timing. It says this, Therefore He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. We see that God is working in his own timing. He will give them up. He has a different timetable. God's working is greater than our understanding. Because, see, what happened is a ruler didn't come and help out Jerusalem. It was an angel of the Lord. If you go back to 2 Kings 19, it says this, many of you know, and at that night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, at a Adramalak and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Ezra Hadan, his son, reigned in his place. You see, after the Assyrians came and went back to Assyria, they were defeated by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians fell victim to the Greeks until the Greeks were overtaken by the Romans. And so it's not until it comes to the birth of Jesus. It talks about the, the, the she who is in labor who has given birth, talking about Mary. And this is the verse, if you know, in Matthew 2, where the wise men come to uh, Herod. And they say, where is the king who is supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Who is this great king? And he summons the chief priests and the scribes. And they quote this. 
verse, if you go to Matthew 2, Matthew 2, 6, verse 5, it says this. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. See, verses 5 and 6 talk about this great ruler that's going to take over the Assyrians. But it didn't happen right then. And what Micah is telling them is that your greatest problem is not the Assyrians. For if you look in verses 5 and 6, he talks about this, this great ruler. If you go to Micah 5 and 6. If I can find Micah 5 and 6. Here we go. <laughs> Micah 5, verses 5 and 6, it talks, When the Assyrians come into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of the Lord or the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. What was interesting was, what well, part of the reason this makes, is so difficult is the question is, if, if Jesus is this ruler, how does, how does five and six make sense? Because Assyria is long gone at the time of Jesus. And virtually every commentator I read said this, said this fascinating thing is that in verses five and six, Assyria is not the literal Assyria. It's, a, it's a, an idea or the, the theme or the thought of the, the, an enemy or an opposition to God's people. And what Micah is saying is, Assyria is not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is sin. Your greatest enemy is sin. See, the greatest way in the way the Lord works was in Jesus. First, 1 Peter 2.24, a fighter verse from a couple weeks ago. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might live, that we, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. So we owed the debt that we could not pay, but he paid the debt that he did not owe. And in verse 5 it says, He shall be our peace. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the one who will be our peace. And Paul in Ephesians 2.14, maybe hearkening back to Micah, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's also in Romans 16.20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I just thought about the, these, these words I thought about this news about to, to the people of Micah's day. At the beginning of Micah's day, they ex- enjoyed great security. They, there was peace. There was, everything was going well. But there was, op- there was opposition and there was injustice going on to the people who were the poor or the needy. And he rebukes them for that. And, and Micah's, Micah has had two themes. One of coming judgment, but also a coming hope. And over and over and over, as we've gone through Micah, he's talking, there's going to be judgment. There's a coming judgment, but there's this restoration. There's this coming hope. And so, the people at the beginning of Micah's time, this, this idea of having a ruler would 
have no, they would have, have no use for this. But for these people who are under siege, they would, when they have a power that's greater than themselves, then they want this ruler, don't they? Don't they want this ruler that's going to come and make everything right? And I thought how true that is that for us today. Maybe if you're, not, you're here and you're not a believer and you're happy with who you are and you don't want somebody to come and rule you, there's no greater power than you, you think over you, you have no use for this ruler, this king, who's going to be your peace. But yet if you understand, as Mike is talking about, if there's, there's this great enemy in your life that is sin, you need something, some ruler that is greater than yourself, this ruler who is going to be your peace, to make everything right. And then we see in verse 4, or I'm sorry, in verses 7 through 9, he talks through the, through the rest of this chapter about a remnant. He talks about a, a remnant of Jacob. Now what's interesting is that as I studied and what I, as I thought about a remnant, it starts out that the remnant was about when at the beginning of the New Testament, it's just the leftovers, the small people that are left over after Israel has overcome and overtaken the, the nations that they've conquered. But as you go through the Old Testament, it becomes more and more, it turns to be more and more talking about the nation of Israel. The, the, this remnant, there's going to be, even though the, the Israel and Judah are going to fall away and not follow the ways of the Lord, there's going to be a leftover that will, be a, that will follow in the ways of Jesus. And so he, he gives two illustrations. The first in verse 7, it says, The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the grass, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. So the first illustration is one of, one of dew that will cover and will not wait for the children of man. And then the second is this in verse 8, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. It talks about this remnant that's going to overcome all obstacles. Nothing will stop it. It is more powerful than any other force. And we see in the, in the New Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of this remnant. He talks about the dew being this refreshing thing, but the lion being this devastating, this thing that will overcome all. And in Jesus, He was refreshing to those who called upon Him. But He gave woes to those scribes and Pharisees that thought they were right. And so also, it goes to us. In 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 2.15, for those who are being saved, us as the church, the bride of Christ is now the remnant. We are fragrance of life to life to those who are being saved, but of death to those who are perishing. And so all of church history is an example of, an example of being refreshing and being one of a dangerous people that cannot be destroyed in the face of all adversity. And I just thought of two examples. There's two recent examples that I have been thinking of 
The first is this, a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. I don't know if some of you have read it. But he talks about the unlikely ways in which God is working. And one is persecution. And he interviewed, he went all over the world. He went to the former Soviet Union. He went to, you know, Eastern Europe. He went to China. And he talked to uh, Christians all under persecution. And his question was, why is there persecution? And he says this, quote, Most of all, I wanted to know why. And he talks about another, a number of answers. But none of these answers even comes near to the foundational cause of persecution as it relates to the Christian faith. After almost 20 years of walking through the, this world of persecution and talking to hundreds of believers who suffer for their faith, we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the primary cause of religious persecution in the world today is people surrendering their hearts and lives to Jesus. He continues, Think about the implications of this truth. For decades, the Western church has been taught to pray and work for an end of, to the persecution of the fellow believer around the world. We seem to forget, though, that Jesus himself promised that the world would reject and mistreat his faithful followers just as it rejected him. Could it be that the only way that Almighty God could actually answer prayers asking him to end the persecution of believers would be to stop people from accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior? And then he goes on to say, he talks about all the, the people who are persecuted, and he say, says that he's never heard them pray to end persecution, but only that they would be faithful and obedient through their persecution and suffering. None of them asked that their persecution would end, but only that they would be faithful and hold fast to the Lord in that persecution. And I thought about another way, that the, and another example in which the church is like that refreshing dew or like that devouring, devastating lion that will overcome all circumstances. And I thought about Gladys Alward. I just read about her this week. Some of you know she was born in London in 1902. She was a tiny woman, only about four foot ten, and disregarded and overlooked by many. She struggled at school, didn't do very well, but at age 26 she applied to the China Inland Mission. After a, after a probationary period, she was denied acceptance because they thought she was too old to learn the Chinese language. So she worked for four more years. But after four years, at the age of 30, she still wasn't able to afford a ticket going by boat to China. So she went the perilous route and spent all of her life savings and went by land to China. And in a short time, she just started t preaching and talking to, to orphans and children. And in a short time, she had gathered a hundred women, uh, young orphans. But Japan had come into China and there had started to be a war. And there was a bounty on her head. And one of the biographies says this. The war intensified and her children charged now number, and her children numbered a hundred. She had become a citizen of China in 1936 and her activities in support of the local populace, I'm sorry, and her activities in support of the local populace, including a bit of spying on the Japanese, made it unsafe for her to remain in Yangchen. Being warned of a bounty on her head, dead or alive, she gathered up the children and narrowly escaped the city. Unable to use roads or transportation, she was forced to leave her children, lead her children on foot over the mountains to a safer 
province of Siam, some 100 miles distant. The trek took 27 days in which they had to endure the elements and many hardships. She herself had become ill en route. And when they finally arrived safely, she collapsed. The doctors were amazed by the feat as she was suffering from typhus, pneumonia, a relapsed fever, malnutrition, and supreme exhaustion. See, here was a woman considered by many to be too old, too dumb, too poor, too short, and she was able to overcome great obstacles. Nothing was able to overcome the work of Christ in her life. And so it should be the work in us, in the church. We should be able to be that refreshing dew on the grass and be like a lion to overcome all obstacles. And so we see that God works through the remnant. But lastly, we see in verses 10 through 15 that God works in the remnant. Six times it says, I will. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will, I will, I will. He's working in the remnant. And he says in verse 10, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. Verse 11, I will cut off your cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off your sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more pillars of fortunes. I will cut off the carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Why is the Lord doing this? Why is He, as we just talked about, the great ways in which the Lord is working through the remnant? Why is He now working in the remnant? Why is He destroying their cities and cutting off their, their chariots and horses? It is to expose their hearts and to expose what they put their trust in. Talking about their security, their natural and physical reliances. In verses 10 through 15, it talks about all these things that they put their hope in other than Christ. And it isn't all that different for us, is it? For them, in verses 10, they looked at security in their horses and in their chariots. For us, it's no different. We look for security financially or career-wise through 401Ks and promotions and a secure job. Or in verse 11, they look for security in their city, which obviously wasn't very secure at this point. Or they looked for their strongholds. For us, we look to live in gated communities or in safe parts of town. In verse 13 or 12, they look for fortune-telling. They want look for these tellers of fortune. For us, we want to be in control. Some of you have the idol of being in control, having it all worked out. You would desire to know what is going to be the future. Or, verse 13, I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. Some of you, just the promises of God aren't good enough. You need this physical representation. So you look to something in your life that is validation of of being faithful. So you look for kids that walk with the Lord. Or you look for some other thing that validates who you are in Christ other than His promises in you. Or in verse 14, I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. 
For them, they were worshiping the ashram, the god of fertility, and so they would bow down and worship that. For us, it's no different. There's this, we live in a culture that worships and is captivated by love and sex. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis said it well, They and we want security that is more tangible, faith that is more manipulative, worship that is more impressive. Somehow it is difficult to be satisfied with the fountain of living waters. And as I was reading this, I was like, boy, this is great. This is good news for all these people here, all my brothers and sisters at Rock Valley Bible Church. What idols are in their lives that they need, that these verses will show them? I was like, boy, this is great news for, for all you people out there. And then it was two weeks ago that many of you know I was notified my job's being eliminated. Now, fortunately, they said that they had another position for me, but it's not ideal, not really the career path that I wanted. But in that, you know, it, it was the Lord showing me what idols do I have in my life? What was I looking to as my job to be secure? The Lord has been working in me to reveal to me the idol that my job had been to me. And so I ask you yourselves, what idols are in your life? And lastly, verse 15, it gives us a way in which God will work. God will work in final days. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. For those who are not a remnant, part of the remnant, He will execute vengeance. See, God was working in the Micah's time and He worked to, and dealt with sin in the person of Jesus. And He is working through the remnants now. And He is working for the final day where He will fight, fully restore the remnant to Himself. In that day, all will be made as it should be. Everything wrong will be undone. Great, God will have great plans. But how is God working now? He's working in you Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let me close with two illustrations. Two illustrations that I think are poignant in showing how God is working and in how we can see that. Two illustrations of fathers and sons. The first is by Ravi Zacharias. He says this, he was, he's from India, and he was going back to India. And he says, Some years ago, I was visiting a place known for making the best wedding saris in the world. Saris rich in gold and silver threads, resplendent with an array of colors. I expected to see some elaborate system of machines that would boggle the mind. Not so. Each sari was made individually by a father and son team. The father sat above the son on a platform surrounded by several spools of thread, and he would gather into his fingers. The son did just one thing. At a nod from his father, he would move the shuttle from one side to the other and back again. This would be repeated for hundreds of hours till a magnificent pattern began to emerge. The son had the easy task, just move at his father's nod. All along, the father had the design in his mind and brought the right threads together. The more I reflect on my own life and study the lives of others, 
I am fascinated to see the design God has for each one of us, individually, if we would but respond. Little reminders show the threads he has woven into his lives, our lives. And then second, I have a, many of you know I have a 19-month-old son, and one of his few words is ball, that he's fascinated with balls. And I came across this illustration from Jonathan Rogers. It says this, Ball, he said, as he gestured to the heavens, I looked to where my, boy was, my little boy was pointing and saw a full moon high in the winter sky. That's right, you brilliant boy, I said. It is a ball. The moon is a great big ball. He didn't know more than four or five words at the time. Mama, daddy, ball, dog, plane. What a remarkable thing to have words only for one's favorite things in the world. The moon is a ball, I told my boy, and so is the earth we're standing on. This whole earth is one big ball set spinning in the universe. He smiled at me. It was not a smile of comprehension, but of contentment. To me it seems to say, of course this is a, the whole world is a ball. And why shouldn't it be? It's a great ball where dogs trot and planes soar overhead and where mama loves me and my dad, daddy holds me into the cold night and tells me what I suspected all along, that the moon is a ball and the world is too. His smile was a smile not of comprehension, but of contentment. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your son. Lord, the greatest way in which you worked, the greatest enemy and the greatest evil was that in sin. And you conquered and you dealt with that great evil and that enemy on the cross. And Lord, I pray that we would be like the sun in these two pictures, in these two stories, while we would strive to understand how you work we would have a smile of contentment and we would do the one thing, going back and forth, doing what you have commanded us to do until a beautiful picture is painted or or made. Lord, I pray for each of these who are your brothers and sisters. I pray that you would work in the remnant and work through the remnant. We pray these things in your name. Amen.